please uh, turn again to Romans chapter 8. We want to look uh, again at these uh, great verses that um, in a really compact way paint a picture for us of the hope that we have as Christians. That's a word that you see in this text uh, is the word hope. God gives his people hope. It's not a hope that can be seen. As the text says, if you, if you see it, you're no longer hoping for it. Uh, it's a hope we can't see, but it is every bit as real and really arguably more real than the things you can see. So let's read together these verses. Verses 18 through 25 of Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us or in us or both, because it is both, if you'll remember back to a couple of weeks ago. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's the hard part, isn't it? (laughs) The hard part. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for what is coming. Uh, Please do tune our hearts to what is coming, to that day, that glorious day when you are put on display before the whole world as a great, matchless, glorious Redeemer and Savior, that day when we will have everything that we desire and long for. Lord, tune our hearts to that day. Fix our gaze upon that day. And be with us now as we think about your word. Grant us your spirit to hear it, receive it, believe it, and then live in terms of it. We ask Jesus in your name. Amen. Please be seated. I stole a book from my, uh, my son-in-law when we were in California um, I, I think I stole it. He may have given me permission, but I just don't remember. Um, and I actually quoted from this book um, on Christmas morning. Now, some of you weren't here on Christmas morning, uh, and so this will be the first time that you've um, heard this particular passage read and this illustration used. The rest of you were probably asleep, and you, you probably missed it. Uh, as well, and besides, good illustrations are like good stories. They're worth hearing again. So I, I want to read just a, a portion 
from this book. And let me just really quickly put it in context. This book that I'm going to read from is called Gilead. It is by Marilyn Robinson. It won a Pulitzer Prize in 2004 or five, something like that. Uh, and the book is uh, fictional, but it is, um, it is a letter that an aging and dying minister writes to his young son. This minister was married very late in life and, uh, and actually fathered a son, and this son is now seven or eight years old. And so he is writing this long, long letter to his son, basically giving his son an understanding of, of his life, his father's life. And in this particular scene in this, this book, um, the father who is writing the letter has gone with his father, the seven-year-old boy's grandfather. Uh, they have gone off to Kansas from Iowa to find the grave of the grandfather's father. Are you with me? We've got four generations in view here. They're going to find the grave of the great-grandfather of the seven-year-old boy who's the recipient of the letter. And so they find it. And this is what you read. That graveyard was about the loneliest place you could imagine. If I were to say it was going back to nature, you might get the idea that there was some sort of vitality about the place. But it was parched and sun-stricken. It was hard to imagine the grass had ever been green. Everywhere you stepped, little grasshoppers would fly up by the score, making that snap they do like striking a match. My father put his hands in his pockets and looked around and shook his head. Then he started cutting the brush back with a hand scythe he had brought, and we set up the markers that had fallen over. Most of the graves were just outlined with stones with no names or dates or anything on them at all. My father said to be careful where I stepped. There were small graves here and there that I hadn't noticed at first or I hadn't quite realized what they were. I certainly didn't want to walk on them, but until he cut the weeds down, I couldn't tell where they were. And then I knew that I had stepped on some of them and I felt sick. Only in childhood have I felt guilt like that and pity. I still dream about it. My father always said that when someone dies, the body is just a suit of old clothes the spirit doesn't want anymore. But there we were, half killing ourselves to find a grave. And as cautious as we could be about where we put our feet. My father always said that when someone dies, the body is just a suit of old clothes the spirit doesn't want anymore. But there we were, half killing ourselves, trying to find a grave and as cautious as we could be about where we put our feet. Do you ever think about that? You ever think about the fact that we, that we go to great lengths with deceased people, with bodies that are no longer animated by a spiritual principle, 
that we have rituals for these bodies, that we that we honor these bodies by marking their locations. Do you ever wonder about that? Why do we do that? Here's why we do that. Because bodies are half of who we are. Bodies are half of what we are. I love the Puritans. The Puritans have been a great encouragement to me. But but I read the Puritans sometimes, and I, I have a book here that some friends gave me, and I love this book. It's a collection of daily readings taken from the Puritans. And, and here's the reading for the 2nd of February. Our God is a suitable portion No object is as suitable to the heart as he is. He is a portion that is exactly suited to the condition of the soul in its desires, needs, wants, longings, and prayers. All the soul needs is found in God. There is light to enlighten the soul, wisdom to counsel the soul, power to support the soul, goodness to supply the soul, mercy to pardon the soul, beauty to delight the soul, glory to ravish the soul, and fullness to fill the soul. Where's the body? Where's the body? See, there's a kind of a dualism, I think, that has very subtly crept in to our understanding of who we are as human beings, and it's not to be found in the Scriptures. This subtle dualism that separates body and soul, this subtle dualism that says it's the spiritual, it's the soulish that is the really good stuff, This body is a thing to be endured and salvation ultimately at the end of the day is to be liberated from this body. That, my friends, is not the Bible. That's not the Bible. Let's make just a couple of observations. As we think about Romans 18 and these these words that Paul uses in this passage, he refers, doesn't he, five times to the creation. He refers, doesn't he, to the redemption of our bodies. Let's make just a couple of observations here because beneath this, what Paul seems to take for granted understanding of the creation and of our bodies is a whole theology of the material and the physical grounded back in Genesis 1 and 2. Let's just remind ourselves of some things here. And here's the first thing. The physical material world as originally created was created good. Was created good. Think back to Genesis 1. I'm not going to read the passage, but just think back to Genesis chapter 1 and then to chapter 2 and remember the things that are said. Remember that in the first verses of, of Genesis, verse 1, there is darkness that is over the face of the deep and everything is formless and empty. It's dark. It's disordered and chaotic. 
It's vacuous. That's what those words mean. That's what that language is all about. And then progressively through the days of the creation, the darkness is driven away with light. And order begins to emerge from the chaos. And fullness, beauty and diversity and majesty and harmony fill up the emptiness. Don't, please, please, can I beg you, can I beg you in this respect, don't be distracted by the days as you contemplate Genesis chapter 1. Don't be distracted about, by the arguments about the length of the days or whether they're literal. Don't be distracted by that. See what's transpiring. See what is happening. The God of glory drives darkness away. The God of glory brings order out of chaos, beauty and harmony and interdependence and loveliness and majesty and tenderness, the whole range of beauty. And he fills up the emptiness with glory. Barbara and I got to go to Europe a few years ago. We took our kids. And after our kids came back to the States, we were able to stay for a couple of extra days. And I hiked a mountain in the Swiss Alps. Pea hopper in Austria. And when I got to that summit and looked out across the farmlands, the valleys the brilliant blue sky, the clouds, the majesty of it all was simply stunning. But on my way up are all of these tender little mountain flowers, yellows and purples and whites, and the hillsides are just full of this explosion of beauty. God filled up the emptiness with His glory, with expressions of the beauty that He is. And He did it by creating a material world. A world filled with evidences of the splendor of His own existence. And six times through the course of those six days, God declares about His handiwork that it is good. You remember? He declares that it is good. And when he gets to the end of the sixth day, he declares about the whole of the thing, the seventh word, the seventh verdict, which God pronounces. And you know something about numbers, that seven means perfection, wholeness, completeness. Ten means abundance. Proliferation. Seven means perfection. The seventh verdict that God renders is that it is all very good. It's all very good. And that very goodness extends to the man and the woman who are the last of God's creative Acts, the man and the woman who are set above the whole of the creation, who are then commissioned to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, to act in God's place as his vice regents, as local lords over this world that he had created. He says of all of it that it is very good and that very goodness extends to human sexuality and it extends to eating and drinking 
and it extends to work. The very goodness of Genesis 1 extends to everything that you are and everything that you do as a physical, material being. And notice this. don't know if you've ever noticed this before. I confess to you. I just noticed it this last week, contemplating this passage, contemplating Romans 8, thinking about the interrelationships that there are between Genesis 1 and 2 and Romans 8. In Genesis 1, the soul is nowhere mentioned. Don't you find that stunning? In a book that is a book about a non-physical non-material God, the first thing that God talks about in his book is the explanation for the existence of the material world, the physical world, all of which he declares to be very good. Paul captures these themes, doesn't he? He captures these themes in Romans chapter 8. They, if you just scratch the surface of Romans chapter 8, it's all right there. Five times he mentions the creation. Five times Paul, in one way or another, as the creation longs for something and groans for something and has the expectation for something, Paul is reaffirming something about this world in which we live, and that is that it is good. As we said last week, it labors under a curse. Why does the creation groan? The creation doesn't groan because it sinned. The creation groans because we sinned. Adam and Eve, the ones who were placed in this privileged position as lords over the creation, we sinned and dragged the whole thing down into this condition of bondage with us. But beneath and behind what the Apostle is saying in Romans chapter 8 is an affirmation that what God does, He does well. He makes good things. Now, don't you love that? Don't you love that? Don't you love that the prospect for you the final outcome for you, the final hope for you is not to spend eternity in some disembodied kind of an existence, leaving this old suit of clothes behind and just being evacuated out of this material world to live in some disembodied existence in some way forever and ever, maybe seated on a cloud, maybe with a golden harp. Look, think of all of the images that you've seen of heaven out of the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, wherever. They're not true to the scriptural hope. And just so you know that this isn't just something that emerges from Genesis and Romans 8, let me take you to the Psalms. I find this fascinating. Psalm 16, verse 9 and 10 and 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. 
For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you see it there? Do you see body and soul? Do you see flesh and spirit? Do you see the constituent elements of who you are? How about Psalm 63, verse 1? O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. My soul thirsts. My flesh faints. The constituent elements of who David is as a human being. Body and soul. Psalm 73, verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. My flesh, my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forevermore. Psalm 84, verse 2. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. I'm sorry, that's 85. 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh Sing for joy to the living God. You hear the affirmation of the materiality of the psalmist's flesh and soul, body and spirit. By the way, I find it interesting. I, I, I don't have an explanation for this, and I fear the explanation that might be the explanation for this. But it's interesting to me that in the ESV, when I cross-reference those passages, the only words that get little letters are the words soul and spirit. Flesh doesn't get a cross-reference. And it should. And I know one of the editors of this Bible, and I'm calling him tomorrow. (laughs) Correct it. Don't allow this subtle dualism to slip in and gut who we are as human beings and in that begin to gut what is our great hope. My groaning, you know, my groaning is different from the creation's groaning. This is an interesting thing. Paul says in the text in Romans 8 that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan. That's a a sermon in itself. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan. Why is that qualifier there? Here's the connection. The creation groans because it hasn't fallen. It groans for liberation because it wants to be free from this bondage to decay. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we who are born again of the Spirit, we who have had that life imparted to us, now begin to groan for that same liberation. 
Until that happens, I don't groan to be free of this world. This world is all I have. It's what I want. If there is a groaning in the heart and soul of a person who has not been born again by the Spirit, it is a groaning to be away from the God who is the God of glory. It is a groaning to possess more of this world detached from God and apart from God. We groan. We groan not to be free of this body. We groan to have this body be redeemed. Verse 23, we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. That's what we're groaning for. That's where the agony is. That's where the longing is. We long. We long. Think about this. We long to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's not just some moral and ethical conformity. That deep, soul-deep longing to be conformed to the image of Jesus includes, takes in the longing to be glorified in our flesh as He is glorified in His flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He died in the likeness of sinful flesh. His flesh was raised, transformed, glorified, and your ultimate destination is to be conformed to His glorious image. Body and soul. That's the final outcome of your salvation. It's not to escape the material, the physical. But it is to have the physical and the material transformed. And here's the second thing. And this warrants another sermon. Here's the second thing. A closely related thing. There is an order to reality. There is an order to things, folks. Oh, I'd love to spend 20 minutes talking about this, 30, 60, 4 hours. There is an order to things. When God created the world, he gave the world an order. And this is the order. This is what, did you see this? Verse 18, 19. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation is longing to be redeemed and delivered from its bondage to decay, but it's waiting for something else. It's waiting for the proper order to be restored. The creation is waiting for your true identity to be disclosed. What were you supposed to do? What were we supposed to do? Back in Genesis chapter 2, two times the word work is found in the text. Genesis 2.5 and Genesis 2.15. But you know what the word really means? It means serve. It means serve. In verse 15, God placed the man and the woman in the garden to work it and to keep it. The word keep means to protect, to defend. 
The word work means to serve. The man and the woman were put in the garden to serve the garden, to steward the garden, to care for the garden, to cause. Will this sound familiar to the women? It will. To cause the garden to flourish. The man and the woman in the garden working together, co-commissioned by God to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. were placed in that garden to nurture and care for and serve the garden so that the garden would flourish, would pulsate with life. Folks. I don't know what your politics are. But don't grumble at the tree huggers. If you're a conservative. If you're a conservative conservative. Don't grumble at the tree huggers. They don't know why they value the creation. But they value the creation because they are created in the image of the creator. And the creator created all of us to nurture and care for and cause the garden to flourish. And as Francis Schaeffer would say, you cannot escape your own mannishness. You cannot escape who you are, who you are created in the image of God with specific purposes, specific tasks. You cannot escape that. And while tree huggers may have detached their tree hugging from the existence of the tree creator, they can't escape who they are. And we all are created to care for the garden, the creation, folks. The creation is not a commodity to be manipulated, bought, and sold. The creation is a gift of God to be stewarded by the people of God. And you know what the creation is waiting for? It's caretakers. It's caretakers. The creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. I don't know exactly how this shakes out in the new heaven and the new earth. Over the course of the last five and a half years, I've made, I've, I've made allusions to the new heaven and the new earth in some provocative ways. I don't know how this shakes out exactly, but here is what I know. Here is what I hope in. Here is what I look forward to the day when my physical existence will be delivered from its bondage to decay, will be transformed and transformed and glorified to be like the glorious existence of the one who has redeemed me. And when that day comes, the whole creation will be liberated from its bondage. And I, together with you and all of God's people, somehow, in some way, will have the extraordinary privilege the extraordinary pleasure of ensuring that in the new heaven and the new earth, things pulsate with life and flourish. Would you love more than anything else to teach Greek? Who knows? You just might. Would you love nothing more in the new heaven and the new earth? To be a symphony orchestra conductor? That's what I want to do. 
Would you love nothing more in the new heaven and the new earth than to cultivate tulips? Folks, this new heaven and new earth and these bodies that we're talking about will be real and physical and material, glorified, transformed, to be crass, put on steroids, but physical and material and touchable and huggable and embraceable, they most certainly will be. And the creation is groaning in anticipation of the day when you, as the caretakers of the garden, along with your elder brother Jesus, the caretaker, par excellence, when you together with he will be revealed and the creation will shout for joy that it and its caretakers are finally, fully restored. Last week I asked this question, how big... Is your salvation? Then ask this question, how far-reaching is it? And then this question, how good is it? Now let me ask this, how big is your Savior? How far does His saving work reach? And how good is His saving work? As you come to this table in just a couple of minutes, remember that you are taking tangible, physical evidences of the body and blood of Jesus Christ in your hands. And those tangible, visible evidences are to you tokens, not only of his resurrection, but of yours. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come to this table, as we think on these things, would you electrify our hearts with hope, the anticipation of this glorious day that is yet to come, when we together with all of those whom you have loved whom you have redeemed, will be transformed, being united with Jesus. We will be fully restored and conformed to his glorious image. And then the creation will be set free. And Lord Jesus, thank you that we have this prospect out in front of us of enjoying the delights of the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever and ever. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.